The following is presented by Lanier Technical College, Concept One Pulley Systems, and Year One Classic Muscle Car Restoration Parts. Hit it! Hang on, you're now part of the fastest podcast on the planet, Bud's Garage Overdrive. Produced in the studios of Jacobs Media, located in beautiful downtown Gainesville, Georgia. On today's show, the Edison Electric Hybrid Semi-Tractor. Ford news and rumors, plus part two of our visit with sports car champion Andrew Davis. All that and a whole bunch more informative automotive buffoonery with Bud and Tim right now. Let's kick it in overdrive. Welcome in, folks. This is Bud Hughes, resident car nut, and Tim DePasquale, upholstered to the stars and through the magic of radio. <laughs> uh, Brad Ocock from uh, Northeast Georgia Swap Meet. And Brad, welcome back in. Hey, Brad, you just float between all these different I places. do. It's, yep, I have mastered the art of being in two or three places at the same time. Uh, we appreciate that. Yeah, uh, it's my right. pleasure. <laughs> Earlier in the week, I got a chance to be on the Martha Zoller Show. Uh, because she had sent me a video over the weekend of a company, uh, Edison Electric Semi-Trailer. It's, it's called Edison Company. Right. And the trailer is called... Uh, it's a truck. Well, the tractor is actually called... It's a truck. It's yeah. a hybrid truck. Right. What's cool about this hybrid truck is it was built bunch, like a bunch of... Well, these guys obviously know what they're doing. Yep. All right. But they're, they also enlisted people for the electric side to help sure. them. But these guys have worked on trucks. They built trucks. They right. refitted trucks. And they came up with this idea after they ordered a Tesla mm-hmm. semi four years ago and still hadn't gotten it. Uh, they were going to reverse engineer and, and do some things that they thought were wrong on the Tesla truck. Right. So instead, they came up with their own chassis, a diesel engine in it. But the engine could be natural gas or gasoline or whatever you want. It just runs a generator. And so, as we all know, when you put an engine on a dyno, it's got a sweet spot. You can yeah. have it you have it run at that sweet spot all day long, and it generates. So they don't care what fuel you, you put in it. Nice. And it's got two huge electric motors on, on the rear axles that drive the truck. You can get either a, a tandem or what do they call it? A tri? Triaxle. Triaxle. Right. Uh, because these guys are hauling logs up in British Columbia. Right. Right. And they have a, if you just, just Google uh, Edison, and electric trucks will come up. And the cool thing about this truck is, like the headlights on it are, you know, headlights from a, a freight liner or something that's been around since the 40s. They're a round headlight like trucks used to right, have. Right, right, right. They used, uh, instead of using engineers to spec parts, they used the mechanics yeah. who chose parts that are proven reliable and always on the parts store shelf. Correct. So that, as this guy Chase says, if we go out of business and you have one of our trucks, you'll still be able to buy parts for it as wow, long as remarkable. the parts store carries them you well, know not only that brad if you've got if you're if you're out trucking in this big truck yeah and you break a headlight okay like like tim says you can go to the parts store and buy another headlight okay any you know truck stop whatever yeah if you break a headlight on a new name the truck yeah whatever it could be it's molded into the fender it, yeah uh it could be you know four hundred dollars fourteen hundred dollars whatever mm-hmm what if the supply line is down? Yeah. You know, yeah, then you're then you're, down. Du- then yeah. you're duct taping duct taping the, the headlight on that <laughs> right. you need. Right. So you can drive the darn thing. Exactly. Uh, yeah, anymore a headlight is body work. Yeah. Not electrical work. Yeah, 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 absolutely. So 
How many times have you taken a frame apart on a vehicle? You know, like taking the cross member and stuff out. I've actually done it quite a few times. Okay. Well, a lot of times they're not held in with bolts. No, they're held in with rivets. Yeah. No, what, what we call a rivet, they call them a hulk bolt. Huck bolts. Huck bolt. Huck yeah. bolts. Mm-hmm. You know, it's put in there hot and then they swedge it over and, or it's put in under, you know, hydraulic yeah. pressure to swedge it over. You can't take it apart in the field. No. Their entire truck is bolted together with grade eight bolts. Right. If wow, you want to take nice. a fender off, you want to take the dash off, you want to take panels off, obviously various sizes. And the frame goes from the back of the truck all the way to the front. So there's Very no nice. there's nothing added on. When you when you hook onto the tow hook on the front of the truck. You're pulling the frame. You're pulling yeah. the frame. Which is the way it should be. Right. Yeah, and and be. these are log haulers and they're hauling a hundred and forty thousand pound loads in British Columbia. Yeah. And the way this thing is set up so that it can use the electrical, uh, the electric, it, it is also a plug-in. So on a full charge, it'll go up the mountain, dirt road, yeah. on its own. You can load up the logs and then come back down the mountain using the regenerative braking Correct. to recharge the batteries yeah. to go on down to the mill. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's, it's so the, basic and simple. Does the, does the motor or engine or whatever does that also charge the batteries because what i'm thinking now is rather than plugging into the wall and using no you don't have to plug it into the wall you don't yeah you don't have to just leave it run overnight like like truckers leave their diesels run all the time you you wouldn't you wouldn't really need to because you wouldn't be shut down that long you know it doesn't take that long the the generator is running at a constant speed right and, and so it's it's charging it's either running the motors at the back of the truck right or if if it doesn't need to, you know, it it charges the batteries to yeah, what they which, can hold. Which sounds like a fantastic solution. Because you're not at peak load all the time. Well, you're not at peak load all the time. You don't have to rely on on an electric grid that's not up to date. You can take this out into the like these guys are taking it into the mountains. Right. Which is they based this on a small town in British Columbia that ran. That was their only electrical source was a generator in the town. Yeah. And a battery bank. And these people, the only time they had any issues with power was when everybody came home and, and plugged in stuff at the same time. Yeah. Then you'd go into the battery bank, and then you, as you you know gradually came off the grid, the generator was still doing its thing. That's where they came up with the idea of, of doing this with a truck. That's interesting. And they can retrofit your truck. You don't have to buy their cab. Their cab is a, is, is looks like a piece of construction equipment, mm-hmm. um, and, and he referenced a, an older style truck. Um, but the visibility and stuff is amazing. Yeah. So I, I think it's a great idea. I was really excited about it. It operates a lot like diesel electric, modern diesel electric trains. Trains. Exactly. Absolutely. Exactly. Yes. Ah. Remember, and there's, 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 no, there's no connection between the gasoline or, or diesel or whatever engine that's running the generator and the axles. So they took the transmission and, and everything right out of it. Right. 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 Everything's in the rear axles. And you don't need that big Man. engine to drive it because all it's driving is a generator. Yeah. Yeah, it's a 9.3 liter Caterpillar diesel is what they're using. Yeah. He said you could use But you could use anything. You could right. put a big block Chevy in it if you wanted. Well, I suppose so. It doesn't really matter. Yeah. Yeah. But as long as you put fuel in it, it'll run. Exactly. So I, these guys are so far so ahead. If of, these guys run these, if they run a gas engine on propane, like like correct. guys have done for years, for on, years on yep. irrigation pumps and everything mm-hmm. else. Uh, back in the old days, out west especially, they used these Hercules, huge Hercules butane engines. 
That's right. Wow. Okay. Yeah. I, I think it's... It, check it out. Go to their YouTube, Edison Electric Semi-Tractor. We're going to get them on the podcast because I, I want to hear it from day one. They built this thing in a Quonset hut with a dirt floor in less than a year. Really? Yeah. yeah. Right. Wow. So yeah. they didn't need investors to build the factory. They just said, let's get it done and got it done. That's fantastic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, tell you, you know what I like about Lanier Technical College and all technical schools in general? What is it, bud? The fact that you don't have to spend a ton of time training for a new career. Right. And a great career is being an AC service technician. Oh, absolutely. How many times you had guys come out and work on your AC system or your heat pump or your, your heating system? You know, when you need them, you need them. Right. And uh, we have a shortage of them. Absolutely. So I would suggest if you're looking for a new career and you don't want to spend, you know, a whole lot of time getting into it because mm-hmm. this program has internships, you might want to consider the Lanier Technical College Air Conditioning and Technology Diploma Program. You will always have a job. Absolutely. Absolutely. And the cool thing about the skills you learn at a technical college is that you've got that job to slip in your back pocket. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're an air conditioning tech, it doesn't matter whether you're doing it in Georgia or Texas. Right. You know, if you're a mechanic, a race car person, whatever. Whatever. You can take that skill with you. So many of the, the programs of study that Lanier Technical College are like that. Mm-hmm. You may have to do some, some things with certificates and stuff when you get into the medical things. Right. But you have the skills. And that's the great thing about the technical college. If you want to learn more about all the different programs of study at Lanier Technical College, you just go to LanierTech.edu and check out everything and start a new career. Okay, that sounds like a great idea. It is a great idea. Our next victim is Aaron Hughes from Green Ford. Aaron, welcome in the Bud's Garage. Hey, guys. Hey, how's it going, Aaron? I'm all right. good. 48 years old today. Wow. I am. I am. Happy birthday. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. 48 years. Okay, so what's happening at Green Ford as we head into the new year? Well, uh, what I like about going into the new year is always the model changes. So Mm -hmm. we're waiting on our first uh, 24 F-150s. We've not seen those yet. We're very excited about the new Ranger. Uh, I don't have an exact date on when we're going to be seeing those, but uh, we've had them. uh, We had the guy come in with one with the training. You know, it's got more room in it. we got, of course, we're all excited about the V6 uh, 2.7 in that thing, uh, which is what I have in my F-150, my personal F-150. So I'm very excited, fuel mileage, torque, that sort of thing. And uh, so I'm always excited about the new 24. What, what engine out. did they have in them before? They have a 2.3. Okay. They have a 2.3 four-cylinder yeah. yeah. turbocharged. Turbo. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, same ones in the Mustang. Oh, okay. Um, you know, in the small Mustang. And uh, the 2.7 V6 is, uh, a lot of people like to have that V6. But That's the turbocharged turbo, v- right? That is a twin turbo yeah, okay. V6. And... Uh, you know, in my F-150, I'm getting 22 miles to a gallon with the thing. I bet wow. you I get 26 ga- miles to a gallon or something in a Ranger. I have no idea, but I bet it will. Or better, and it'll have all kinds of power. Okay. I'm excited about it. I get, I get about 22 to 24 in an F-150 with a, with coy- a V8. Yeah. With a Coyote in it. Oh, you know, if you drive it. Reasonable. Well, you have that and tiny little F-150. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Right, yeah regular it's, cab, it's lower. Yeah, it's the same, yeah, it's it's, the same yeah, size yeah. As, a, as a Ranger, you know, a four-door yeah, Ranger, yeah, basically, yeah. if you yeah. measure the wheelbase. My big question is, and everybody's big question, with the V6, what's the, what can you really buy one for without... without That's the part I don't know yet. I'm no. excited about this part. We haven't seen this yet, but I don't know. I what's do a Ranger cost now? 
Uh, Rangers now are going to run, you know, mid thirties, okay. uh, unless you're getting one fully equipped. You know, when you, you're getting all leather and all the bells and whistles and all the technology and that, they can crack over forty. Um, but uh, yeah, mid thirties, they're mid thirties to forty. Any big changes in the look or anything? Yeah, it's okay. a, like I say, it's a it's a wider bed. It's a whole new design. Oh, cool. Um, I, I say whole new design. It's still a full frame. Uh, truck, but the, I think uh, you know the old one. We all know that we talked about this a couple of years ago when they're coming out with them. You know they had taken the the designs from overseas and kind of brought it over, yeah, and standardized yeah. it a little mm-hmm. bit, beefed up the suspension and that for American. Now it's kind of an American truck. Now it's mm-hmm. now it's okay. It looks like a Ranger, but it's it, it feels. Uh, I, I like the other Ranger too, though. I, I, I'm excited about it. I think it's gonna be really nice. Well, the uh, F. Uh... 150 EV. Ford has done a 180 degree change of direction on this. Mm-hmm. Uh, tell us a little bit about that and how it's affecting you. Well, um, it, it's almost not affecting us at all because we don't have many of them. Um, you know, actually, I have none of them in stock. And the reason for that is most of the people that ordered the uh, electric F 150s took delivery of them. The ones I've had in stock are just people who elected not to take take them. I've never had one for stock that was ordered for stock. Every one of them's always been ordered for customers. I think Ford has figured out that, which all of us, and we're not in a rural area, but we're in kind of a suburban area. But if you are in a rural area or a sub, you know, suburban area, people that buy trucks are interested in fuel mileage, yes, but they're more interested in using a truck as a truck. They're not, you know, people that are in cities are... are especially in metropolitan areas, you're not going to be able to plug an electric vehicle in if you're in an apartment or even if you're right. in, in any kind of city itself. So you kind of have to be in the suburbs and, uh, you know, and, it, and you got to be not driving a whole bunch. Mm-hmm. Like up here, we're very seasoned to drive half hour, you know, here or there. And even if you're getting, you know, 300 miles on a charge, that kind of thing, it's just so much more convenient. But you're targeting an audience who fuel having an electric vehicle is not something that was even on your customer's radar. They really never right. had on their radar, hey, I have an F-150, boy, I wish it were electric. Yeah. That's not ever occurred to most F-150 owners. No, because you, they bought a truck. Yeah, and yeah, I think right. Ford, you know, with the, with the government, with all of their, uh, you know, I call them rebates, but all of their tax, uh, <laughs> tax things and stuff. Um, and then with the big push with Tesla, um, you know, I mean, the Tesla truck, I have no idea what it's going to do or its thing. It's, a, it's still a very interesting let's i'll say interesting i think it's one of the goofiest goofball ever Mm, seen um and the people that uh that are going to buy those will be your normal uh you know it's going to be like an extra vehicle they're not using it to replace their existing pickup it's like look at me vehicle that's exactly right you're you know whereas people that own f-150s you're you're looking at this is a big 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 market i mean it's a number one selling vehicle in america so it's uh, you know, all of a sudden everybody's not going to go, oh, yeah, I don't need an engine anymore. I just want to plug it in and, <laughs> you know, and then I'm going to I'm going to tow my boat to, you know, I, I mean, it's just not to me. It never really made sense, to be honest. With well, you. you know, the conversation at the feed store is when I hook up a trailer, how far am I going to go? 
Oh, sure. Yeah. yeah. And, and you know, in, I think I've said that on the show before. It doesn't really matter what kind of vehicle you have. You're thinking that anyway. Right. You know, right. I mean, if, if I have a dually, a, a diesel dually truck that normally gets 400 miles and I hook up a 15,000 mile or a 15,000 pound trailer and now I get, you know, 200 miles, I'm still thinking that. Yeah. But yeah. I'm not worried about not being able to fill it up in 10 minutes. Exactly. You know, if I have and to haul charge something. And, and haul something. That's oh, yeah, exactly yeah, yeah. right. So you've got to go fill up a fifth wheel trailer yeah, with round bales yeah. you know well, yeah, that's right. you know that's right. i mean that's i got right. i got james that works with me that goes he, of course he's doing big trucks but he's uh i say big trucks he, you know he has a dually and he's going and picking up cows and stuff and, yeah. and a trailer full yeah. of cows but it's not a big deal for those guys to drive four hours one way in an afternoon yeah that's not that's not practical no. Anybody on Super Duties, the electric doesn't make sense. And honestly, on F-150s, it doesn't make a ton of sense. It makes mm. a little bit of a sense from a commercial standpoint. You know, if, if sure. you know that, hey, I'm, I need a truck for, for delivering parts or whatever it is. Right. You know, that makes sense. And obviously, when fuel costs were going through the roof. But, I mean, really, you get the, the market didn't determine, I think, is what it comes down to. I mean, you read the articles, if you really dig into it, mm -hmm. the market didn't ask for electric vehicles. So now, the government yeah. asked for electric right. vehicles. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So now That's you've what got it comes people, down to. people, well, you, you just said it. Yeah. The F-150 EVs or Lightning that went to people were people that ordered it. Yeah. What a concept. Build, right. the, you know, build it for the demand, not for your... Exactly. Pie in the sky dreams or all right. Well, last, that's right. Last time you. But were, it's also very, very difficult to create a vehicle like that without a huge initial cost. Yes. Mm -hmm. That's where that's where it comes in pretty pretty hard. All right. Pretty difficult. Last time you were here, I know you wanted to talk about supercharger systems available for the the Coyote, and I think you can get them for the F one fifty two, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Um, you love goodness, the, the I, new <laughs> Mustang. So go ahead. I do love the new Mustang. I'm a big fan of the new Mustang. Uh, yeah, they have uh, this these supercharger systems now. Boy, I don't. We had talked about this, and this was what a month ago. Yeah. Um, and they, they just have some some great systems, and they're pretty much bolt-on units. Factory now. warranted. Factory warranted uh, units, bolt-on units that are uh, just you know where you're you're looking at seven eight hundred horsepower these things wow. and the engine's built the engine itself the bottom end of the engine it'll this is what it. this is what we were talking about off the air last time yeah is, you know, take it a lot of times you, you you bolt a supercharger on an engine and then you've got a big problem with the mechanical elements of the engine um not being able to handle it and in this case i mean there is no issue at all it's a bolt on and rock and roll you know Cool. Yeah, very, very nice. All right, so. I'm going to jump on one of the patents out of the two that we talked about. <laughs> it's patent time. It, okay, it, here we go. It, it looks like Ford is heading in the direction of a cab over pickup truck uh -huh. called the T3. Yeah. Um, your thoughts? Mm, I don't believe it's cab over. I think it'll look like a pickup truck. I think it's uh, going to be well, a it's smaller. Well, it's forward cab, longer bed kind yeah, of looking yeah. thing. Well, I yeah, I think, you know, when I've seen the little pictures of it, I've, I've heard about the T3. Of course, in my world, I don't hear any of that stuff till it's in production. Right. So I'm just like you guys. I'm, mm -hmm. I'm looking at all the spy sites and things like that. Um, I think the idea is to have, which this I think would make more sense than the electric F-150, which I think it's going to be to have kind of a smaller electric truck, which will probably give you the more range, uh, that kind of thing. Um, and I think it looks a little bit kind of Rivian-like to me. Um, you know, so it might be designed a little more to compete with the smaller Rivian uh, trucks, which, of course, Ford was going to be a big part of the Rivian, so it wouldn't surprise me at all if they decide to do their own thing. You know, had some interesting ideas on How can folks learn more? 
you should come see me uh, uh, 2365 Brownsbridge Road here in Gainesville, Georgia. But check out greenford.net. Tim, last week we talked about small block Chevy pulley systems from Concept One here in Cumming, Georgia. And we talked about the Victory systems. They have, basically with your Chevrolets and some of the other ones, they have Victory, Basic, and Driver Series. Mm -hmm. And they all involve different styles of pulleys and things like that. The Victory is the Mac Daddy. It's got all the, the show-looking stuff. And they offer a system uh, that just has the alternator available. They offer one that's got the alternator in the power steering or the alternator in the AC. Mm -hmm. And then you can get all three of them uh, you know, in the the top series, and the prices go from the alternator series being a thirteen ninety five. Now, what that's going to give you is your alternator, your idler pulley, and your pulleys to go on the water pump and the crankshaft, and then you can go up to the alternator and power steering. Uh, add another five hundred bucks to that, mm -hmm. or you can go to the alternator and air conditioner, same price eighteen ninety five, or you can get it all. For twenty three forty five, no hunting for pulleys in the junkyard. Yeah, use a serpentine belt. Right, everything fits and it looks beautiful. That's a bargain. I've used them so many times, and there, there's no other place to to go to. Oh sure, just uh, Concept One. Check them out online, and uh, give them a call and tell them what you're doing, and they'll work with you on a system. Okay, great stuff. Made right here in Georgia. Wow, I love that. In the good old USA, in. Uh, Minnesota, Duluth, and the Twin Cities of Minneapolis and St. Paul are facing challenges in transitioning their public transit system to zero-emission electric buses because of sub-zero <laughs> temps. Which Who is, wants to jump which, on this first? Uh, yeah. Which is weird because the Minnesota state motto is 40 below keeps the riffraff out. <laughs> really? <laughs> yes, it is. It's right on the flag. Oh, Evidently, I can't read that closer it didn't work next time, time I look at the flag. Yeah. Mm. So, I don't... You know, we talked about this with the Gwinnett um, the, the school, school system. Buses, right. It's, it's bought all these. Now, they, they're not going to deal with the, the you know, sub-zero temperatures, but they're going to be affected. Oh, you know, sure. When, when it gets chilly be. out, mm -hmm. it's going to cut the battery capacity at least in 30%. At least. Yeah. And That's... in the summertime, when it's 100 degrees, it does the same thing going the opposite direction. Right, yeah. Right. You know, about 80, 80 degrees is a sweet spot for the battery. Sure. So you start going... I don't get it. I, I don't just, either. But I you know what? You're paying for it. You're paying for it. Right. I'm paying for it. If you're listening, you're probably paying for it. Mm -hmm. Be it in, you probably paid for this, for the, the research in Duluth or wherever this is in Minneapolis. But, you know, it's, it's like I say, the amazing grasp of the obvious. We know what a battery can and can't do, and yet and the, we keep using it. It's been talked about for years that, that the batteries go down in the winter because you're running the heaters and the heated seats and the... the all of the things that you need to keep the car warm. This isn't a new concept. No, but, but here's here's how they here's how they answer the dumb qu the question about why did you know why did we even think about these technical and vendor related issues have further hindered the transition. But the cities that we just named remain committed to their approach, offering lessons for other regions <laughs> of the country considering similar uh, transitions. And, and the yes. spokesperson for the city. Dave Clark, he says they would fail, they would not perform, they would experience malfunctions, glitches, they were extremely problematic right out of the gate. And how much do you think they paid for each one of these buses? Probably half a yeah, million bucks. this guy bucks. was, oh was a former British rock and roller. Oh, jeez. Wasn't it? <laughs> oh, that's not that same Dave, <laughs> Clark. Dave Clark. Come on, oh, bud. Wrong Dave Clark. Okay. <laughs> this is the progressive Dave Clark. Oh, okay. Yes. 
Is he the one who used to do New Year's Rock and Eve? No, no, no. no, no. no. You were thinking of uh, Dick Clark. Dick Clark. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm in pieces, bits and pieces. <laughs> that was Dick, Dave Clark. No, that was Dave Clark. Yeah. Right. Santa, what was the what was the one? Oh, it was gonna, you know, it was gonna take over the Beatles. I can't. I'll, I'll think of the the song. Okay. Like All right. right. Yeah. All right. Moving on. <laughs> Speaking of batteries, if uh, if you've got a battery that's you, first of all your battery was never alive, okay? But if you've got a battery that's that's gone dead or is mm-hmm. dwindling, and you have to dispose of it. Uh, you know, a typical car battery. Now we're not talking lithium ion and all this other stuff that's out there for EVs. Uh, it's made of lead plates and sulfuric acid. And I did not realize this, but actually car batteries are one of the most recycled things that we have in the United States. Okay. Like 97% of them wow. are, are, you know, recycled. Yeah. So, first of all, if you're going to change your battery... Man, I'm telling I'm not even sure I wouldn't even suggest this anymore. Uh, you always remember to disconnect the negative battery terminal first. Never allow the wrench to touch the positive because you can actually weld things together. Oh, yeah. yeah mm-hmm. Or burn things very badly with a wrench. It's heavy. Lift with your knees. Eh, I, I don't know. I don't know. These, I don't know who's writing this. But, I say uh, go to Oakwood Tire yeah, yeah, and yeah, let yeah, them yeah, yeah. replace your battery properly. Well, before, before they replace it, they have the way to check it. Right. And tell you how much life is left in it. You mm-hmm. may just be wondering as you're listening to this this broadcast, hmm, hadn't thought about my battery lately. I, I wonder where it is. Yeah. And, uh, you know, what it looks like mm-hmm. and how much life is left in it. Because, you know, many times it might not even be the battery. It happened to me one time where I thought it was the battery. It was actually the alternator was not putting out enough Oh, yeah. There you go. Was not replacing enough juice yeah. in the battery. Well, you could have a bad <clears throat> ground. You could have crud on the terminals. Right. And, and like I say, you, your battery could be in in a place that you didn't even know it was at. You just you just assumed you open up the you open up the hood of your car. And, oh, oh, my Dodge Magnum is like that. Yeah. There's I, my I, battery. Yeah, yeah. Twenty yeah. minutes to find the battery. Yeah, it's right. under the driver's seat or someplace or yeah. in the trunk. Or, and, yeah. and the other thing is, when you disconnect this battery to put in a new battery, <laughs> what happens to all of your computer stuff? In your car, they used to make, and I'm not, I'm, I'm not. This is not the gospel. When I, when I was working on this kind of stuff in the dealership, I had a little nine volt battery mm-hmm. with a like a cigarette lighter end on it, and what you did was you stuck it into the cigarette lighter port, and that kept everything. That kept really? everything juiced up enough for you to change the battery. Now, don't they have Ooh, something that like you that. can plug into the port where you do your engine analysis? Don't they have something that you can plug in there that'll keep everything charged up while you're changing the battery? Uh, you know what? I'll go to Complete Auto Parts and find out. Okay. Well, that would be a doggone good idea. That's the only place we would go to check out something sure. like that. Sure. I oh, just reset my battery, my clock in but the anyway. parking lot while I was when I pulled in this morning because well, I changed the battery. You did what now? I reset the clock in my radio in the parking lot here outside while I was. And how long time. did that take? It usually takes me two weeks. Well, it actually just—it's somebody finally, somebody at Chrysler finally got smart, and they've got two little push buttons, one for hour, and you just put your no way. pen in it. Oh, oh it's amazing! Wow. Oh, yeah. oh wow! Jeez. Yeah, then the only problem you've got to do is find a pen. <laughs> but <laughs> uh, well, I suggest that uh, you leave your battery alone and mm-hmm. have pros do it. Um, Get it checked, and uh, you know this is the time of the year. <laughs> oh yeah, it's, it that sure is. That is going to go south mm-hmm. on you. No, no pun intended. 
but if you need to dispose of extra batteries, dead batteries you may have laying around or using for doorstops in the shop. Sure. Because you yep. didn't get a chance to drop it off at the parts store. If you need to dispose of extra dead batteries, Clarios, a battery manufacturing, offers a zip code-based finder for battery drop-off locations, dead batteries. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay, that's, that's interesting. interesting. I always just take it to the, I, I take my batteries to the um, junkyard. And yeah, but they, they, they reach out to a recycler. Yeah, yeah. yeah well, it's not exactly. like you're throwing them in the dumper. No, anything. no, but you actually take them in there and then they pay you and for And they, they recycle them. Yeah. Right. Well, and you get, you get like 5 to $10 a piece for them. Yeah, oh, some okay. of the parts stores do yeah. that too, and I'll put that in my homework. Or oh, I didn't know mm-hmm. that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah I always take mine Don't go out now. Yeah. It's not like collecting pop bottles. I'm just, <laughs> or catalytic don't converters. With, yeah, don't, be, don't pull up with a tractor trailer of the, and, and the, oh, yeah. the, the things yeah. we open ourselves up to. You know, last week we talked about uh, the, the engine issues I had with a crate engine. Right, right. So-called crate engine. So how's that working out? We're still working on it. But um, there are some myths and methodology methodology around breaking in a modern engine. Mm -hmm. Now, it used to be when we buy a car, you didn't go over 50 miles an hour for the first however 100 miles. They pretty much say now that uh, a lot of your engines require uh, zero break-in because they've already had some testing done at the factory. Right. So before you go out and, you know, take your brand new charger whatever to the drag strip read the manual Mm -hmm. i know what the break-in period is because uh like a corvette z06 still has a specified break-in period yeah and some of the cars won't won't let you you know access the full power have the full power right until it's broken and and you know why they're doing that why is that we're protecting us from us yeah (laughs) yeah well, we might be protecting us from some hot shot at the dealership when the car comes off the truck that wants to uh, Ooh, that's a good go out and I molest it. Yeah. yeah, well, I thought about it a lot. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, I've heard of that yeah. happening. Well, folks, Andrew Davis is back with us today, part two of his interview. Uh, professional race car driver Andrew Davis. Uh, when he was here last time, he took us all the way to UGA with him. And I'm going to jump in and ask right from the get-go, were you playing football at UGA? No, I wasn't. Okay. Definitely not that level. Uh, okay. You know, and I think, uh, I, but I was in the stands and cheering for those guys. I love my Georgia Bulldogs. Uh, and there was tough times uh, back then. You know, we weren't always, uh, it's, they've been very good to us recently. So I can't complain. But, uh, you know, the ups and downs of, of, uh, of college football. Are I, I love energy. the Bulldogs except on Saturday classes. Yes, yeah, that's right. I, I, was, I was teaching and driving back and forth on Saturdays. Oh, day. Oh, that's man, so good, yeah. Oh, yeah All right, so up. what are you studying at UGA? And how, how you know, how did it come into your your racing career? Yeah, so I was uh, uh, lucky to get into the Terry College of Business and uh, was studying marketing and sales. So marketing was my major with a concentration in sales. Um, so, and that was such a great program. The Terry College of Business is, is you know, nationally renowned and world renowned now. And very proud, a proud alumni of the school um, and of the Terry Business College. So studying marketing and, and learning a ton and, you know, it's, it's uh, and learning how to, to try and translate that into my racing stuff. I remember talking to the, the, the people at the Red and Black, which was the school newspaper. There was an article on me there when I was running F2000. Uh, and then later on, I was on the cover of the Terry Business Magazine, uh, you know, after my pro career had launched and gone. So, so um, you know, always try to tie in what I was learning at school to how I could make this help me in motorsports. 
and marketing and sales uh, allowed me, obviously there's a lot of selling of myself, you know, selling of my services. So it really allowed me, the things I learned allowed me to kind of skip past the having to have a manager, having to, you know, pay that money because I didn't have any funding to, to pay for a manager, you know, which they normally needed retainers and they'd find your rides. What I learned was the ability to uh, promote and understand how I could add value. And my, my favorite professor there at the University of Georgia was uh, uh, Kevin Ellis, Professor Ellis. And he would just go so heavy on the, the, um, the presentations. So the presentations, you know, and I don't even know, who knows where they were, you know, you get with your group, you make the presentation on the thing, but the thing that helped me the most was the facilitating. So getting up in front of the class and learning to speak in public, because public speaking obviously is a lot of people's number one fear. And, and I loved it, I liked it. I realized as I was giving those presentations, as long as I knew what I was talking about and was confident, I could get up there and talk all day. And since motorsports is my passion, uh, you know, I, I can speak about that all day. As long as I know what I'm, what I'm going to speak on, there's no fear. I enjoy sharing that knowledge. So, so I, I owe a lot to what I learned at university to help me pave my, my racing career, for sure. So you graduate from UGA. What year are we talking? That was 2001. So I stretched it out a little bit longer. I got there in 96. Um, I stretched it out for two reasons. One of them was racing. I was racing quite a bit. Um, so I was taking kind of quarters and semesters off to, to do my SCCA stuff that I was finishing up with and my USF 2000, uh, Formula 2000 stuff. But also I met my wife in accounting class and she was a year behind me. So I was happy to, to slow up uh, and hang out with her uh, a little bit more. So okay. I, I realized how awesome it was in Athens and how great it was being a student at UGA. So I wasn't in a hurry to leave. Oh yeah, I could, I could see that. Um, who's on the track? Who are the pro drivers on the track? Anybody that you used to visit with as a four-year-old kid? Uh, yes. So the whole time when I started at, at UGA, uh, so I was there at Comprint, uh, you know, working on my race car, but also I realized, hey, you know, I need to, uh, I need to find a way to, to make some money. Um, you know, my parents were great to me, um, you know, helping me with living expenses and stuff at college. I, I was really able to hit the ground running. But uh, I started instructing at Road Atlanta. Road Atlanta's home. I talked to a few people. I talked to actually a, a fellow named Bo Barfield, who uh, is a great friend of mine and a race steward. He's the race director for IMSA. So right. I've worked with Bo this whole time. And, and I, he was the kind of the, the chief driving instructor for the F2000, the USF2000 series, which I moved into first. That was kind of my first cut of like really high competitive stuff. Small formula cars, uh, you know, the graduation class of of, uh, you know, around the time I was racing included Dan Weldon, Andy Lally, um, you know, Brian Sellers was a few years back, but there was a, a Ryan Dial, I think, raced. A lot of pro sports car drivers ran F2000. I'm leaving out a bunch, but uh, you know, it was a lot of us in that kind of class. So um, Bo Barfield, though, was the series coach, so he helped me a bunch. And around that time, I said, you know, I, I want to instruct. What else can I do? So he got me an interview with a fellow named Joe Foster, who was running the Panos Racing School. Mm -hmm. I went in there for an interview, and they said, yeah, okay, we like it. Come on in. Here's how it works. So I started as an instructor at the Panos Racing School, where I met a lot of great people um, and, uh, and worked there throughout college as well, in between classes and days at the race shop and race events that I was doing in, this, in, this, in the Sports 2000 and in the F2000. So, uh, and, and met a lot of great people along the way there at, at the driving school, which helped my career. Um, and a lot of great instructors there. And that also brought me into working at the Porsche Driving Experience, 
which at that time was being run by Jeff Perner, who had moved from the Pano School to taking control of the, the Porsche driving experience. That was up in Birmingham, right? That, that was before Birmingham. That's before. when it was still okay. at Road Atlanta. Oh, okay. And that's where, to answer your question, was where I started really rubbing elbows with some of those heroes because there was uh, uh, one man named Hurley Haywood who was extremely important in my career and as my mentor, and that's kind of who I, I one, of, one of my mentors, but has helped me so much in my career. But some other guys too, Doc Bundy was a driver I loved because he was local and he was an instructor. Jack Baldwin, another man that's helped me out a ton in my career. Um, Chip Robinson, David Murray, these are all these guys that I was like, I couldn't believe I was oh, yeah, working yeah, next to these absolutely, guys. Yeah. And I'm now, you know, been the kid watching them race, and now I'm a coworker with them, you know, and I'm out there doing hot laps and driving around in Porsches and learning from them, learning how to, to, uh, to instruct, learning how to teach, learning things about driving as well from some of the greats. And that's on the Porsche side. There was also some great instructors at the Panos Racing School, you know, Cass Whitehead still doing it, mm-hmm. one of the best instructors I've yeah. ever been around, Brian Cunningham. Uh, Eric Foss, Chris Hall, um, Christian Coggins, so many guys, you know, and so, some lifelong friends of mine, but some just amazing people. So we all learned and worked together and it made us all better. It was an amazing program over there. And I owe a lot to the Panos Racing School and the Porsche driving experience for my career as well. But I was able to rub elbows and learn from my heroes from, you know. So many names I remember, you know, yeah. when, I took, when I took the Panos Racing School, mm-hmm. I learned not to wreck the car. Yeah, that's right. Because at that point in time, we had a bunch of them at the school, and if we wrecked them, we had to fix them. That's right, so. that's right, yeah. And there was a lot of body work on those things, so they would smash up pretty big, a lot of, yeah. a lot of repair work. So when one of you, you you're in the S two thousands right now. Yeah. All right. Where where do you make the transition to cars like the Porsches? And, yeah. And, and you know. The so it went cars. from the sports two into the formula car stuff. Right. So the formula car stuff, you know, uh, the F two thousand was uh, was basically the same engine as the sports two, but but was the uh, uh, an open wheel and the open wheel was the way to go right and, and i still kind of think it is for young drivers but uh, it's expensive so the 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 right path and the path that my dad and i agreed on was let's get to open wheel and see how far we can go so i started racing usf 2000 for about a year and a half the next step at the time i wanted to be an indycar driver champ car um, and the, and all those drivers were coming from formula atlantic which was the next step up and I remember after my F2000 year, uh, yeah, I did well, you know, top five guy, you know, running in a low budget team, uh, you know, without, without all the support. Um, but then I remember having a phone call at one point in time. This is because of the stuff at UGA. I was doing my own marketing. So I remember calling some teams at the end of the season, Atlantic teams. And I was talking to one in particular, and I thought to myself, uh, I kind of found out what my parents were paying or spending, and I stopped them at that time. I remember asking my mom one time, she said what the budget was, which is nothing compared to what the budgets are right, now. Yeah, yeah. But when she told me that, I was like, I'm not taking any more of your money because you and dad will be poor. I know you guys, you'll just keep paying. So I'll do this on my own. I'll figure this out. Uh, I, was, I was instructing. I was figuring out how to do it, or I'll go find a real job. So um, I remember talking to one of these Atlantic teams and they were like, yeah, we really like what you were doing. We'd love to have you on the team. We can give you a heavy discount. And the whole time I'm like, please say zero, please say zero. It's half a million. And I was just like, I got to go. Thanks. I'm sorry. I don't have that. And I remember just being devastated when I hung up the the phone because I realized I don't have that kind of budget. There's no way I have no budget. So I'm not going to be an IndyCar driver. So I was like, I got to think how to make this work. And at the time, 
there was opportunities in sports car racing. People were being hired. You know, there was other things you could do. And I was instructing and coaching and, and realizing I, I can coach, you know, I can, I can build relationships. I realized how important the relationship building was, whether it was a competitor or a team owner, or as I'm coaching people, they, they want what I'm able to do. They want my expertise. And some of those coaching gigs just continue on coaching gigs, which is a paid a paid opportunity and I love coaching and sharing the experience. Some of them organically turn into rides. Um, so what happened was I had met a fella at the Panos Racing School. Um, I didn't really try to solicit any work from him because that's not what we were about. We were specifically, you know, not to do that. Right. And I listened and I didn't do that. I'm not sure all the instructors did, but I didn't. I didn't try and cross paths. Um, but this fella ended up contacting me after the school. Um, he's a, a doctor down in Atlanta, a guy named Michael Colley. And he called me and he said, hey, I, I'd like some personal coaching. Can you help me out? And I said, yeah, sure. That's great. So he was really my first kind of big paid private coaching gig. And that introduced me into the Porsche Cup car. He, an, he ran one of those Panos GTSs for a couple of years right, yeah. uh, or for a year. We started in that. That's a handful. Compared that was a handful. Porsche. That car was pretty wild. Yeah. Um, and then but then we wanted to move into something else. And, and that that introduced me into the Porsche GT3 Cup, the 996 Cup which we then uh, tested and raced the next year, and that was um, into the Grand Am series. Now, at that same time, my first professional race was actually the 24 Hours of Daytona, which was pretty wild. And <laughs> yeah. that was a deal where, uh, you know, I had, a, I had a little help getting into that car. But I remember being 22 years old, sitting on the grid at Daytona in an open-top prototype car, an LMP2 uh, car, and just thinking to myself, what in the world? How is this possible? I can't believe it. And just being giddy. Uh, and that was my first, first 24 hours of Daytona. And then fast forward, I've done 20 of them since then, which is uh, kind of amazing in my mind. But uh, yeah, so, so I had done that race and then I'd run Petit Le Mans at the same t that same year. Um, and I drove, I ran that with a team called Archangel Motorsports, which right, was yeah. run by Mike Johnson, yep. who I met at the driving school because um, yeah. he was an instructor there too and he also raced f2000 and he ran his car for a little while out of comprehend motorsports so all these pieces come together sure and the relationship building is what happens you know we all kind of like when when opportunities come up they're like this guy this guy but uh, had it not been for michael Colley taking that chance and hiring me as his coach and then that organically building into me being his co-driver he really helped me get into you know being able to showcase my talent and being paid to drive and providing results. And then, you know, it just snowballs from there at the time. So you're being paid to drive a race car. Yeah. How has that changed? You know, it's, um, it's, it's changed a lot now. Um, now this, you know, you, you go on and, and, and once you start, you know, you know, building the, the, the resume and you start providing the results, uh, you know, and, and you become a known paid driver, hired guy, uh, you know, there's tons of opportunities and, and things that come along through relationship building. Uh, you know, I moved from, from several different teams, great teams, uh, you know, Stevenson Motorsports was huge in my career. Then I moved to Brumos Racing, uh, lots of stuff with Porsche, drove with Dempsey Racing with Patrick Dempsey, the actor, um, WeatherTech Racing, all, all these teams. I've drove with, with so many great teams, had the opportunities to, to be a, a hired guy for these, these guys, some full season, some one-offs, whatever, um, and lots of great partnerships, lots of great uh, teammates the opportunity to drive with pros because at the time you know pros could drive together and then moving into the you know the pro-am kind of thing that we're at now um, because the onus over the years uh, to pay for this sport which is extremely expensive has moved away from 
sponsorship, outside sponsors, mostly because in the 80s, in the early 90s, the sponsorship was coming from tobacco and alcohol. Right. Um, you know, and some rules and laws changed and they weren't able to spend money and advertise in the same way. So that uh, tobacco money, we call it, you know, was really propping up motorsports across the world for a long time in the 80s, 70s and 80s. Um, but now the onus is on the, the drivers to pay. So what ends up happening now is that uh, and somebody said this, I can't remember who it is, so I'm going to steal a quote, but uh, I thought it was really smart because it's the truth. Um, teams don't hire drivers really anymore. The drivers are hiring the teams because somebody's got to pay for it. And especially with this you know, switch towards the AM drivers, um, uh, the, the gentleman drivers, we call them, you know, if they're going to pay all this money, and we're talking big money, you know, seven figures in most cases, if they're going to pay all that, they're like, well, I'm, I'm going to drive if I'm going to pay. You know, I'm not just going to pay for it. So we've kind of uh, lost those, the team owners that don't drive. And most team owners now essentially are, are driving as well because they're putting the big bucks in. So it's changed a lot, you know, and, and, and in that there's lots of um, movement in how to stay as a pro driver, how to be the hired gun. And unfortunately, that window's closing quickly on all of us because there's less hired drivers. Because as I said, more drivers are able to bring funding. So it's changing. But these guys that are bringing funding, all right, let's, they're professional business owners for, for the most part. Mm -hmm. and, you know, it's a, they've got the write-offs and the yep. whatever that goes on. What's a professional driver? What is their opinion of the amateurs? Other, and we know the amateurs are paying in a lot of cases. Yes. Are they, are they professionals on track or are some of them just loose cannons with a lot of money? Well, as like any you know, slice of society, it's both, mm -hmm. to be honest. Um, the, the thing that we really appreciate, I always kind of think of it as a, it's a fraternity, a motorsports fraternity from the driver's side of things, okay. right? And, and it's just in general, the, the, the pros that are in there. Um, and you don't have to be a pro to get invited into the fraternity, but you do have to act like a pro. And by what I mean that is, I mean, you've got to put the effort in. So what I love is I love these, these drivers that have other lives, other businesses, whether they're, you know, surgeons or, or entrepreneurs, business owners, whatever. They have real lives and real responsibilities that are taking up a lot of their time. But these guys will still put the time and effort and the training into being uh, as good as they can be. And that's all I ask. I want you to be like me. I want the fire in the belly. And I want you to say, how can I be the best version of myself? It doesn't really matter to me where that puts you, you know, whether you're as fast as a pro or you're as slow as the slowest guy. As long as you're putting the effort into the craft and you understand the, the kind of the rules and, and uh, you know, you respect the, the craft of racing, then you're invited into the fraternity. Um, so, so some of the drivers, it doesn't always, there can be slow drivers out there that have great awareness and aren't in the way. There can be some medium speed drivers that are blocking you all the time and driving like idiots. And, you know, you're wanting to put a bumper on them and get them out of your way. Um, but you know, it's, uh, the relationship, we can't do the sport without these, these AM drivers. They're, sure. they're the blood of the lifeblood of the sport now. So I see it as part of my responsibility to, to train them and make them better drivers. So as long as they're asking for that help and almost all of them do, they surround themselves with people to help them, whether it's uh, the team, the team members, uh, driver coaches, whatever. It's our duty to, to help these drivers learn because unlike other sports, it's a, uh, uh, you know, you can become extremely good at it with just practice and you can get out there and you can actually put yourself 
on the main stage, the big stage. Uh, you know, you can't pay your way in to play in a quarter in the Super Bowl. No, no, that's no. true. That's but you true. can pay your way in to running at the 24 Hours of Le Mans. But you need to be qualified to do that as a driver mm -hmm. because it's a very grueling event. So you've got to train. So a lot of these AM drivers get to very, very high levels and accomplish great things, but only the ones that want to put in the effort. Interesting. Interesting mm -hmm. that you, you, you train and you bring up, you know, being in the Super Bowl or the World Series or whatever. You, no amount of money is going to get you. No, there's no way. Can you imagine? Oh, wow. I mean, I would probably watch a quarter, you know, if there was somebody <laughs> yeah. like me out there, uh, you know, trying to quarterback, the, you know, uh, in the Super Bowl. But it, it wouldn't be very, very so, safe. So our schedules didn't work out today. And I've got a 20-year-old grandson, which is, you know, that's, that's crazy to begin with. But um, he races go-karts, shifter mm -hmm. carts. And you mentioned AMP. He coaches up there. He helps people with their carts and stuff like that. And he, he wanted to be here today, but he works for a race team also. Mm -hmm. So he couldn't because of his obligations. But I know one of the things that I wanted to ask on his behalf. You know, here's, here's a guy out there working with a race team, a, a car race team, racing go-karts. You know, won a championship at AMP last year or the year before in shifter carts, which are just they're amazing. crazy. They're just yeah, crazy. Yeah, so much fun. But there's it's a amazing. lot of guys got a lot more money than him that are out there. Inter interestingly enough, he prepares Joe's cart when Joe is racing. Yeah, cool. So he, he works over there in that shop with Kurt and those guys. Mm -hmm. But how does somebody like that, you know, even even start nowadays, uh, you know, without without uh i understand the the ladder in nascar you know you're mm -hmm. at the dirt tracks you're at the sort well there you know what tracks there are but how do you how do you make that transition now when you're somebody that's you're on your sim all the time you're keeping yourself in shape uh et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. where where do you go from there it's it's difficult. All that stuff you just mentioned is assumed without, that you're doing without that. your grandfather's money. Now. That's well, that's right. So <laughs> so it's it's difficult and it's becoming very difficult. And this is something because I, I I this entire time I've been racing professionally, I've also been coaching. So I'm a mm -hmm. driver coach as well, and I do high level driver coaching um, in all in all sorts of series, club stuff to pro stuff. Um, so I'm there for these AM drivers to teach them and and the young drivers too. So I do a lot of that. And you know, I've put a lot of time and effort and thought into the last uh, you know, five or six years on this changing environment because you know, as I'm a, an, an older driver, you know, a middle-aged driver, I actually am older as far as the, the average age of a race car driver, um, and on the tail end, you know, how can I help these next drivers? Just like I want to talk to these little kids at the racetrack, I also, it's my duty to help these young drivers find that path. And I, I fall in between, I go old school. So one thing I'd tell your grandson is it's about the relationship building stuff, right? He's already in the sport, he's there, he's on race teams, he's seeing people, he's, he needs to be genuine, he needs to, you know, these drivers, they need to build the relationships. And the relationships can't be phony. I found that if you really, your main goal is how can I help this person? Hmm. If you do that and that's your goal, the, the knock on result will be movement forward with that person and if it's not then you're not the right person for that that guy so if i'm coaching somebody and i'm doing a great job and i'm teaching them how to drive and they decide hey i'm going to go run at this level but i need a teammate if i've done my job and they value my capabilities which is what i train for that's why you're doing the sim stuff that's why you're doing the physical training that's why every time you can do something you're working on your own craft but if i put everything into my customer and they move forward, then I'm the logical choice. If they decide somewhere else that they need somebody else, 
it's either because my performance as a driver isn't good enough for what they need or I haven't done a good job coaching them. So, and that sometimes can happen, right? But if you do it right and you focus on the person that's hiring you, I've found that good things will normally happen and it's a natural organic movement forward. So you can't be phony because these people that are paying to do this, they're all high level also. They know, they can smell it when you're, they know the tricks. They know sometimes they're overly suspicious because it's an expensive sport and it can be a bit of a money pit. So um, they, they know. So if you're genuine and you work on the relationships and you focus on how can I make this person better? How can I understand their goals and then help them achieve their goals? Then good things will happen from that. And if it doesn't move into another opportunity, whether it's driving or more coaching, no matter what you've learned, how to be better at coaching or being a mechanic or working on a team or relationship building, and it helps you for the next opportunity. So I'm still fall back to that work hard, take advantage of the opportunities when you get them and work, you know, and, and make sure you're, you're being the best version of yourself and helping other people be better. But also the money, right? That's what it comes down to now. Right. And that's what's stopping, you know, you know, drivers like myself too, you know, it's now, you know, I come and talk to a team. I have relationships with, I can walk under any paddock, any tent and any, anybody and go straight to the team owner and have a conversation with them. It's amazing and, and it's an honor that these people will give me the time, but you know, there's no, not anybody in the paddock that I can't go have a word with for a minute. And the conversations a lot of times are just like, hey, we'd love to have you, but you know, we need funding. We gotta have funding. Right. And then you know, even the ones that kind of like, well, I don't know, yeah, that would be great. Maybe we can do something. The problem is when I leave the trailer, there's a line of people coming in behind me and they're young drivers sometimes, sometimes older drivers, and they're like, I'll give you, you know, this many hundreds of thousands of dollars to, for that job that that guy was just asking for some pay for. So the problem is, it's like if you're, you know, instead of I'm asking for money and salary to pay for my services, but there's these people in the line next to me that have the funding to help the teams. And the teams, it's too expensive. The teams have to survive. They have to, the funding has to come from somewhere. So unfortunately, that's making it hard just to be a pure hired gun. So what I'm finding now is that it's about generating the money yourself. So the new thing that I'm seeing the younger drivers doing, and you know, I'm not a big fan of social media. I think there's a, a bit of a problem, but that's a discussion for another podcast. But uh, you know, generating this opportunity to, to find funding, and then you go to the team and you say, hey, I have, we'll just say half a million dollars. I got half a million dollars. Uh, you know, but maybe, you know, you take a little bit of that out yourself so you can pay yourself and you can have some living expenses. And then you, you know, so you take X out of the, the amount that you're giving them. Um, but that's what these teams are asking for. Almost all the young drivers you see out there, really all of them are funding the program somehow, whether it's personal money, family money, which is great. That's awesome. That makes it easy, right? If you've got that. But uh, if not, they found the, the sponsors to bring. And I know one particular driver told me about seven or eight years ago, a younger guy, Canadian fellow, super, super talented. And he told me one time, he's like, yeah, man, I just have to get like 10 or 12 people that'll agree to give me a little bit of money. And then, you know, my suit's got all sorts of patches on it. And then, you know, that way I can go to the team and say, I'm free. And then that helps too, if you can come in there for free. But he has to, you know, he has a family. He has to pay for his living expenses. Sure. So he has to build up all these sponsorships. So you almost, it's hard enough to be a professional race car driver and focus on that. But you almost now have to be a professional sponsorship, uh, you marketing know, guy. Marketing guy. Oh, the whole thing. That's right. And so what's next for Andrew Davis? So, you know, it's, I'm at a, a not, I don't, I'm not yet at a crossroads. Um, I'm working on a full season effort for 2024. Um, it's looking a little difficult, you know, in IMSA. 
the other sports car racing series I race in SRO. Uh, both of those programs look a little difficult for me right now. I've been in other stages this time of the year where it's not quite together and I get a little nervous, but um, I do have a, a partial season with, with uh, one of the teams that I've been with for the last several years and a great, uh, great opportunity. And I think that's going to continue to grow. So, so I'm going to be in race cars next year and Good. racing some, Good. maybe not as much as I'd like to, but I'm going to be at the racetrack because coaching is, is again, another source of, of income for me and, and what I do. I'm a, I'm a professional racer and a professional driver coach. So right now I'm building up my, my uh, coaching programs. Um, I'll probably continue. Well, I will continue on with Kelly Moss, uh, which is a uh, Kelly Moss uh, racing team based out of Madison, Wisconsin. I've had a, almost a 20-year relationship with now. Uh, they run Porsche Cup, GT3 Cup, uh, the, the Porsche Carrera Cup North America Series, Porsche Sprint Challenge. A lot of my career, I've had a great relationship with Porsche. You know, won championships with them. Um, uh, the time with Brumos, you know, cemented me in there. The relationship with Hurley Haywood, all that stuff. Uh, so I do a lots, lots with Porsche. So the majority of my coaching stuff is with Porsche, but also I have great relationships with other brands, Audi, GM, um, Aston Martin. So um, I'm always going to be at the track doing some coaching. So the next several years I'll be focused on that, uh, you know, as I transition away from driving as much. But also you never know, you know, I mean, there's plenty of drivers. We can, we can drive into older ages at, at a pro level. I still have it in me. That fire is still there. Sure. The skill yeah, level's yeah. there. The, uh, the know-how and the experience is super high with the older drivers, you know. That's the thing. It's just what we lack, you know, the, the hired gun guys, we lack the funding. And, and a lot of these teams aren't, aren't uh, you know, they're not buying what we're selling because they've got to have this funding. Um, so, uh, so this year I'll be racing some. I'll be coaching a lot. I'll be continuing to get better, uh, you know, every single day and hone in all my skills. And, and, uh, and we'll see where that takes me and uh, what, what, uh, what move is next. Lot, lots of thinking, though, now. Now it's, now it's time to think about what is, what is next. What am I going to do next? Uh, you know, where am I going to move in the sport where I can still use all this, this internal drive for uh, making the sport better and making myself better? There'll be a place for you. I, I hope I'm so. Sure. I feel, yeah, I feel like sure. that, too. I mean, you're, you, you know, you, you, you're a terrific individual. You worked with some terrific people. I sure and, and, you know, it, I think you're what the sport needs right now to influence the young guys coming in because they need to realize, you know, where this is going. We don't want to see robo cars out there on the no. track. And, no, no, you know, the, yeah. So I, it's just been a thrill to have you here, Andrew, well, and thank uh, you. to be part of the podcast. And uh, you're invited back anytime. Well, I'll come back for sure. But you've been uh, you've been a great uh, influencer and part of my career as well. I, I'm, I'm very grateful for all those people along the way. And and you know I don't I don't ever intentionally leave anybody out. There's so many. I mean I couldn't have done any of this without the help from all the individuals and the relationship building. It's a great. It's just it's such an amazing sport and amazing. Uh, paddock that we have and group so uh, I, I do I feel like I need to give back and I'm going to continue to find ways to give back it is an amazing family motorsports it, it really is a family we, we do put the fun in dysfunctional but it is, <laughs> that's, that's it, is a, it is an amazing family for sure that's right uh, thanks again for being here at Bud Scratch Overdrive the podcast awesome so last week I had your recommended glass guy come and put the rear window in the Mustang fastback I've been working on forever, okay. forever and ever it seems uh, the 73, where the glass is almost laying down flat, mm -hmm. but it's mounted in rubber, so you got to have the, you got to put it in with a, with a rope. Right. And he had the special gizmo. I mean, you know, 15 minutes he had it in. Yeah. And everything was cooking, and I had some, some trim, to put back on the window, that I had gotten from year one, and it's good trim, 
but Bud had used brand new clips and I did not understand the concept of trim clips. Uh, they need to fit looser than I had them on the car. Mm -hmm. And uh, you, have to, you have to tweak them a little bit when you put right. them on. So that's what's called tuition when you're building a car. You, you pay tuition one way or another. So I went to put the trim on and I messed up the trim. Mm -hmm. So I called uh, year one and I told them what I'd done. And I, you know, after they got done calling me a big dummy for not stretching the clips <laughs> out. But after we got through that, uh, I said, well, can you get me a couple more pieces of trim? He says, man, we're out of it. He says, we got some coming, but it's not here right this minute. But they found another supplier for me and they got on the horn and they said, here's somebody that does have it in stock because we know you're trying to get the car finished, as any of us nuts are that are building the car. When you get right. to this point, you're trying to get it done. And so many times I put that trim on and did the little slap right. and broke the glass. And that was my biggest concern, breaking mm -hmm. the glass, but instead I, I you, messed up the trim. Right. That yeah. trim is very fragile. Well, and you know what I found out? And, and like I say, all of this is a lesson learned, is every place there's a clip, they recommend that you take a piece of masking tape and... Let, remind yourself where the clip is mm -hmm. so you're not trying to push it on to, or you're not hammering it down where there isn't a clip. Where there isn't a clip, And right. it'll bend the other part of the, mm -hmm. the trim. So, you know, that's the kind of things you learn as you go. But, uh, you know, the folks at the counter year one could probably have told me that if I had called them and asked them, how do you put this trim on? Right, but, but you don't know no, what you, you don't, don't know. You don't know what you don't know. Yeah, you don't even know what to ask. And, and nobody's, nobody's judgmental. They just say, hey, you know, yeah. well, let's see if we can get you some more stuff, and next time don't be such a big dummy. Use a smaller hammer. Right, we all run into that from oh, time to time. Absolutely, and uh, folks at Year One will help you out. Check them out at yearone.com. Well, DJ Bill, it's time for our thank yous. First of all, we want to thank Jacobs Media for the studios, facilities, and all the equipment. Uh, Linear Technical College, where you can learn an actual career and make a living when you get out of school. Check them out at LanierTech.edu. Lanier Year one, classic muscle car restoration parts, keeping American performance uh, going. Check them out at yearone.com. And Concept One Billet Pulley Systems, the only systems I use when I'm building cars you should use them too. Check them out at c1.com. And Andrew Davis, uh, this week he is down in Daytona getting ready for the, uh, his first race of the season. And uh, so let's uh, give a shout out to him. If you want to check out his career and what he's doing, check out andrewdavis.com and you can go to his Facebook page. And uh, I guess we almost got it, except for DJ Bill. Oh, Brad Ocock. And Brad Ocock, you're right. Thank you. That's why you're here. Brad Ocock, Northeast Georgia swap mate. He, uh, he showed up here today and we had some fun and that's, that's always a good time. Tim DePasquale, my, uh, my guy that rides shotgun every week on the radio show and most of the weeks on the podcast. Check out the work that he does. It's amazing at timsautoupholstery.com. Now we'll go to DJ Bill. Tell us about it, DJ. Thank you, bud. Go to djtrivia.com. You'll find out all about the game that I produce and also uh, host in the Northeast Georgia area. But we're nationwide. Type in your zip code at djtrivia.com. You can find a free and fun, family-friendly game near you. Back to you, bud. Bud's Garage is available on terrestrial radio. That's our radio show. Um, you can check that out at AM 550 and FM 102.9. Uh, you can also download an app called Access WDUN, which will play the show for you every week. Or you can go to the podcast site you're on right now and listen to Bud's Garage or Bud's Garage Overdrive anytime you want. So, you know what's coming up next week? We have a national TV star with us, Bill. That'll be Sam Madavi from Motor Trend. Sam's Garage. 
and uh, we're going to have a good, good time with him. We're going to do a two-part interview with him where he talks about getting into the business and what he's doing now with it, and it's a pretty amazing stuff. Super. So that'll be good. Remember to keep between the ditches, shiny side up. We'll see you next week right here on Bud's Garage Overdrive Podcast. Have a great week. <laughs>